You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. James chapter 2. heard a story recently about a young Christian, brand new believer, heard that the Word of God was really important for spiritual growth, and so he decided he's going to get into the Word. He opens his Bible up. He reads the book of Galatians first. And he was really enjoying reading this book of Galatians. He had never read it before. He's reading about this guy, Paul, who's writing to these these people living in the region of Galatia and talking with them about the grace of God. And um, he was in this section in Galatians chapter 2 that is just an awesome section that really shows the difference between Christianity and man-made religions. We see here that Paul is writing in Galatians 2, and he writes, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. To be justified means to be made right in the sight of God. And religion is all about being made right. And then usually religions, they have all these works you're supposed to do in order to be made right in the eyes of the deity and to please God. And what Paul is teaching here is the big difference. It's the good news. The big difference between Christianity and works-based religion. We're not made right in God's sight by our own works, but by simply putting our trust in Jesus Christ, trusting Him and His forgiveness. Paul says, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. He says it again, it's by faith, it's not by works. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified, no one will be made right in God's sight. He says, I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Yeah. Why did Jesus Christ have to die on the cross if, if I could be good enough to get to heaven? No, that, that would be setting aside the grace of God. There's nothing that can be added to what Jesus Christ has done. He lived the perfect life we should have lived. He died on the cross for our sins, and he dies in our place. We simply ask him for that forgiveness. We receive it as a free gift from him. Nothing I can add to that. Paul goes on, he says, you foolish Galatians, you fools thinking you could be justified by works and that you could add anything to faith? What fool would think that? He says, I just want to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Yeah, this is one of the great benefits of becoming a Christian is we receive God's Spirit living inside of us. It it, it gives us a connection to Him. It gives us power. pours out His love into our hearts. What an amazing feeling that is. And he says, what, you just were good enough and suddenly just the Spirit popped into your heart? Or did you receive it? by an act of trust. It was a relational trust. Are you so foolish, he says it again, to think that you could somehow get this by works and and not by faith alone. After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh, your own strength, something you can do? No. And so this new believer was reading this stuff and was just so built up by reading about grace. He keeps going in chapter 3. And Paul cites an example from the Old Testament. He says, Father Abraham, this has been this way from the beginning. He believed God. It was his faith in God. And then that faith was credited to him as righteousness. It was given to him. Righteousness was given to him because of his faith. He says, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. So anyway, he finishes reading Galatians. He decides he's going to read another book. Pops open the book of James, a book he's never read before either. He was a little surprised, though. He started running into problems when he got to James chapter 2. 
passage we're going to read tonight. James says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? So James is picking up the same topic as Paul, but he seems to be saying exactly the opposite. What if you have faith but no works? Can that faith save him? And he's like, I mean, I think so. I mean, that's what Paul seemed to be saying there. He reads a little further. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And so Paul said I was a fool for thinking that having begun by faith, I could now switch to works, and that I could add works to faith. Now, James seems to be saying that I'm a fool for thinking the opposite, for having faith without works. And then he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? He's citing Abraham to prove the opposite point that Paul was proving in Galatians 3, that Abraham was justified by works. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And so apparently, um, faith plus works is what James thinks is how we get salvation. That is how we reach true perfection. And to top it all off, he says, the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, citing the exact same passage, the exact same verse in the book of Genesis about Abraham, seemingly to prove the opposite point. And he says, in conclusion, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Basically the exact opposite of what Paul was saying in Galatians chapter 3. And this is what we call a problem passage. This is enough to confuse even mature Christians and to make them throw up their hands and say, why am I bothering to read this? What are we to make of this nonsense here? in James chapter 2. You know, some just throw up their hands and they say, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. It's a product of man. This is why we can't trust it. You know, many Roman Catholics know this verse, and they cite James 2 to teach salvation is by works and not by grace through faith alone. Many lordship theologians cite James chapter 2 to teach basically salvation by works. Um, some, you'll read some commentators and they're like, well, you, as you see here in the early church, there was a, a debate between James and Paul about how salvation really happens. You know, one thought, Paul thought it was salvation by faith. James thought it was salvation by works, or at least faith plus works. And so they were, they were, this was their debate they were having with one another. Martin Luther, the great theologian, didn't know, know what to do with this. He was so confused by it, he decided just to throw the book of James out of the Bible. Here's what he says. I don't hold the book of James to be of apostolic authorship. Why? Mainly because in direct opposition to St. Paul and all the rest of the Bible, it ascribes justification to works and then declares that Abraham was justified by his works. <laughs> yeah, sure seems like it. Man, what are we going to do with this here? Well, <clears throat> If this is the only chapter we had in our Bibles, this would not be a problem passage. This would just be the way, the way of God. And we wouldn't have a problem passage on our hands. But the problem arises when we have tons and tons of other passages, some just as clear as those Galatians ones I was reading for us, that teach that salvation is not by works, that we can add nothing to the finished work of Christ, and that salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. 
And so we can't just say, well, both are true, because we have one author, God, standing behind the different inspired authors of Scripture. And so we're going to have to do the work of harmonization, where you take two passages that the plain sense reading seems to be contradictory. They can't fit them together. And we've got to take a closer look and think about how can we fit these passages together. First thing we need to realize is that James and Paul were not enemies of one another. They were not in a fight over the doctrine of salvation. You can just look at how they talk about each other. For example, Paul writes in Galatians 2, he he tells about this trip to Jerusalem to visit James and Peter and John, and he says, these guys were known as pillars of the church. They recognized the gift God had given me. They accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers, and they encouraged us to keep preaching. He knew what Paul was saying. He was not against what Paul was saying. These guys felt like they were working together in the cause of the gospel. Or there's a letter written by James and some of the elders in Jerusalem that we find in Acts chapter 15. And referring to Paul and Barnabas, he calls them our beloved Barnabas and Paul who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a letter affirming these guys and what they were teaching. And so Paul and James are not in a conflict with one another. This is not some political power struggle in the early church for what the doctrine is going to be. No. What I'm going to argue is that James and Paul were writing to different audiences facing different problems. And so we want to take a closer look at James chapter 2 and see if we can make some sense of this passage. James chapter 2 verse 14 says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no work? So you can see right off the bat here. He says, can that faith save him? What he's not talking about is whether this person has faith. He's not saying, if someone has faith but no works, can that faith save him? He says, the, the, the issue here is the person says they have faith. It's a claim being made by the person. We can't see their heart. We can't see whether they really have faith. God can, but he's not talking about God. He's talking about our view, our perception of this person. And so the person is claiming to be a Christian. They're claiming to have faith. But is claiming to have faith enough to be a Christian? Just because you claim to be a Christian doesn't mean you're a Christian. No, it's, it's not like you say the magic formula, you say the magic words. It's not a magic spell you cast. There's something deeper than that. There's a, a, there's a trust of the heart that happens. There's a relationship with God. There's spiritual realities. And so saying I have faith is not enough to save someone. That's what James is saying here. Is enough to merely claim to be a Christian and go to church? There's a lot of people that claim to be a Christian and have sat through church services and are simply not. And I know that for a fact because I was that for many years of my life. I grew up being dragged to church every week. And uh, I, I think I would have said I'm a Christian, but looking back, I'm like, I was not a believer. I did not have true biblical faith. And so I was about a senior in high school. I was basically going through the motions up until that point. And that's what James is worried about with his audience. Remember who he's writing to? He's writing to to Jewish believers. These were people that were raised in Jewish homes. They were raised around the Bible. They'd been around this their whole lives. And those of you that grew up going to church, you know, sometimes you can kind of build up an immunity to spiritual things if you're exposed to it in large quantities at a young age. You hear things and you just think that's something adults do and you don't really get it and you just keep going through the motions and you try to behave and maybe you dress up 
and you try to avoid certain behaviors around certain people. And that's, that was my life. And James is worried that some of his believers are saying, some of his readers are saying they have faith, but there's no internal reality. And that's not a very pleasant existence to be in. James is, James is doing this out of love. He's trying to get in there. He's trying to get at these hard issues and lead them to true, genuine faith. And he's trying to help them see that they have a problem. He says, for example, what if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food? And one of you says to them, oh, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. God bless you, brother. God bless you, sister. And you don't give them what's necessary for their body. What use is that? The implication here is you have plenty of clothing, plenty of food. You see this fellow brother or sister, she's there, she's shivering because she has, you know, poor people only have one set of clothing back then. They were often pretty threadbare, not much use against the cold and the wind. They were hungry. And he says, you have the ability to meet that need and you're doing nothing about it. He says, what use is that? They're saying, be warmed and be filled. Be warmed and be filled. The kind of the passive middle voice there. By whom? Who's supposed to warm them and fill them? Is he saying, you should warm and fill yourself? Like they hadn't thought of that? They're like, oh yeah, I should just put that coat on that I have. I should just eat all the food that's sitting in my fridge, rotting. No, they don't have a coat. They don't have food. What a self-righteous, condescending thing to say to this person. Or are they meaning, be warmed and filled by God? May God do something about this problem. Okay, if you haven't noticed, God is not in the habit of launching coats from heaven (laughs) or loaves of bread. The way God works is God provides maybe something for you and then makes you aware of a need and then asks you to meet that need. And so what happens is, We get the dignity of meeting real needs, and we get the relational closeness that comes from that. We get to be used by him. But this believer is not doing any of that. How about you? What about you? Be warmed and filled. Maybe you should do something about this. Instead, you're just spouting empty words that have no internal reality. Empty words where your mouth is claiming something that you clearly don't believe. You're saying, boy, I really wish you had clothing and food. Yeah, and you could do it, and you're not doing it. These are empty words, mere words, and faith is not just words. How can you tell the difference between fake faith and real faith, between faith that is just words and faith that is, is biblical faith? You look at the deeds. You look at what sort of actions are flowing from that faith, and actions will not flow from faith all the time, but they will eventually lead to actions. Faith will eventually lead to action. And Paul and James says, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. That is a dead faith. Faith that is merely words, that is not biblical faith. He goes on, he says, well, someone may well say, well, you have faith and I have works. You know, there's, there's many different roles in the body of Christ and you are the kind of Christian that does things and I'm the kind of Christian that believes things. And both of us are important. James says, why don't you show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Yeah, that's the difference between you and me, James says, under this scenario. 
And James is not talking here about showing our faith to God. God can see the heart. God can tell who really belongs to him. God can tell who really has faith. No, what he's talking about here is showing our faith to each other. You see, show me your faith. I will show you. He's trying to get at this. True faith will play out in deeds. It will play out in works. He says, oh, you believe that God is one. This is the great um, the Shema prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Well, um, he says, you believe that God is one. Good job. The demons also believe that. And they shudder. Yes, the demons are not confused about whether there is one God or many gods. They are quite sharp theologically when considered from one perspective. They do believe, and they shudder. And this is not like a little quiver. Blomberg says, this is uncontainable, uncontrollable, violent shaking from extreme fear. (laughs) That, so the demons, they don't even just have intellectual knowledge, theological knowledge of God. They are emotionally affected by it. They're terrified. They're strict monotheists. You see them when they meet Christ. They believe in the deity of Christ. They believe in a lot of it. They believe in Scripture as the Word of God. You see Satan quoting it to Jesus. But faith is more than mere mental assent or the emotional shivers. If that's all your faith is, you need to take a second look at it. You need, to, you need to ask yourself, is this is really biblical faith? Because if I just have some mental assent and some emotional reaction, well, how am, James says, how are you any different from demons? <laughs> A little shocking here to his audience, the good Jewish raised Christians here. It's kind of the difference between believing that and believing in. He says, you believe that God is one. It's one thing to believe, you know, a doctrine. It's another thing to place personal trust in someone. And, you know, some people try to dichotomize these two. I think belief that is important. It's like you've got to know something about the God that you're personally trusting. But it's another thing to believe in God, to trust him personally. I remember um, a a number of years ago going rappelling. And if you've ever been rappelling, this is where you, for some reason, you back up to the edge of a cliff, and then you... The goal is, the hardest part is, you have to go from up and down, you just have to lower yourself back while keeping your legs straight until you are 90 degrees out from the side of the cliff. And that's a lot harder than it sounds. And I remember coming to the edge of the cliff, and I just, I couldn't do it. I, I knew the rope was gigantic. I knew it was tied around a tree that was not going anywhere. My harness felt very firm, but... It was one thing to believe that this would hold me, but it was another thing to believe in the rope and in the instructor who was supervising the whole thing. And it wasn't until I lowered myself backward and put my full weight on it that I went from believing that to believing in. My, my faith actually took a jump forward. What James is worried here is that his audience is standing there still looking at the rope. They haven't actually made that personal step to put their faith in Jesus. They're just standing there at the top of the cliff looking at the rope, not going anywhere. He says, yeah, your theology about God is right, I guess, he says. 
But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Part of the problem is your, uh, your theology of salvation. And then he gets into Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Yes, this was a, a story from the first book of our Bible, Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. He's referring to possibly the greatest act of faith that Jews recognized in the entire Old Testament, which was their whole Bible at that point. They're talking about Abraham offering his son Isaac up on the altar. I'll, I'll elaborate on that a little bit more in a minute. But he says Abraham was justified by works when he did this great act of trusting God. Now the word justify there, it does mean, more often than not in our Bibles, to, to make someone righteous. When God justifies you, he declares you to be not guilty anymore, innocent in his sight, which means you get to go to heaven. But there's another meaning for this word. It can also mean to show to be righteous, to demonstrate to be righteous. In the first case, this is a righteous standing before God. In the second definition, it's showing other people my righteousness. We even use it this way. It's like, I'm try I keep trying to justify myself to you. I keep trying to justify my actions to you. This is me defending myself to you. I already believe that they're right. I'm trying to justify myself to you. Jesus criticized the Pharisees for always trying to justify themselves in the sight of men. They're trying to defend themselves. They're trying to show other people how righteous, how right they are. And we've already seen a few times, James is talking about, show me your faith. I'll show you my faith. You can see. James is apparently using the second definition, to show to be righteous. In fact, this is how the New Living Translation translates this verse. It says, was not, it says Abraham was shown to be right with God by his works, by his actions. This is how we could look at Abraham and we could see his faith because his faith was faith in action. He's talking about how we show our faith to others here. That's the flow of thought here in this passage. He says in the very next verse, you see, that's the word for to see something with your eyes. You see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. So again, this is something that you can see now in Abraham because the faith played out in works. He showed us his faith by his works. Something that initially started as a private interaction between him and God eventually played out in this mighty act of faith. He also says Abraham's faith was perfected. And it is true that when we step out and act on our faith, our faith grows. But this is really not a passage on spiritual growth. I think the, a better way to translate this would be to, his faith was completed. It's like one, he, James sees it as one long continuous thing that starts with faith and plays out in works. You know, you think about shooting an arrow at a target. You know, it's like the faith is releasing the arrow, but then the, the, lot, the, the natural completion of that act is hitting the target. Or you think about planting a seed in the ground. James has already used this analogy once in this book. You know, when you plant the seed in the ground, you can't tell what's going on in there unless you dig it up and then you ruin it. But if you plant the seed in the ground, 
you know, it's probably doing its thing. It's germinating. Roots are starting to go down. A little thingy's starting to come up. But you don't really know that there's life there until you see it come out of the ground. And that's the way faith is. There's something that happens beneath the ground that you can't see at first, but then you know there's life there because you start to see things coming up out of the ground. Faith brings life, brings growth, it brings fruit. And this is what he's saying here is that Abraham, his faith was brought to completion by his works. Faith leads to works. And he says the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham was called the friend of God. So what really helps in this passage here is it helps to get a timeline of the life of Abraham. So I just wanted to tell you a little bit of the story of the life of Abraham. He was a guy who was married to a woman named Sarah, and he was an idol worshiper. He was not a follower of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And one day God called out to him and he said, Abraham, I want you to go somewhere. In Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham. Abraham was 75 years old, childless. His wife was 65. And he said, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And and Abraham says, where is the land? And God says, it's that way. And so he packed up his family and he started moving northwest up the Euphrates River. And down, he kept following where God told him to go until he got to the land that God had promised him. And what God had told Abraham, he said, I am going to give you this awesome land someday, and I am going to make you, childless Abraham, into a mighty nation. And he says, all the other nations in the world, they will be blessed by you and your descendants. And so he promises this one will come who will bless all the descendants of the world, the seed of Abraham. And so Abraham follows, and Abraham goes to the promised land, and he's 75, and then he's 76, and he's 77, and he's thinking, boy, we're going to get pregnant any day now. And years and years begin to roll by, and they're not having any kids. And Abraham goes to God, and he's like, so God, you know, that whole many nations thing, it must mean that you're going to you know, my inheritance will go to my servant, Eliezer. And God says, no, Abraham, no. The child will be born through you, through your seed. Even though you've never been able to have kids before. And he took Abraham, it was night. Abraham was lying up thinking about this. He took him outside, and it was a clear night. And God says, I want you to look up at the sky, Abraham. And I want, you to count, I want you to look at the stars and tell me, how many stars do you see? And Abraham said, I, I can't count the stars. There's too many of them. If you've ever seen the starry sky on a clear night with no light pollution, you can imagine what this sight would have looked like. And God says, yeah, you can't count the stars, and neither will you be able to count your descendants. And at that moment, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. God deposited righteousness in Abraham's moral bank account. And that's when he had right standing before God. And that was when Abraham was probably 80, somewhere in his early 80s. We don't know exactly how old he was, but he was, early, he was younger than 86 when this happened. And so that's the moment, this moment of faith that Paul refers to and that James now refers to, 
where Abraham's faith made him righteous before God. Well, Abraham's life goes on. And even after this promise from God, they're still not able to have a kid. They're still not able to have a kid. They come up with some crazy ideas to have kids, and um, Abraham takes on another wife at, at his wife's suggestion and has a kid, and God's like, no, actually not, not that one. You, he tells him when Abraham gets to be 99 years old, he says, you and your wife Sarah are going to have a kid together, even though he was 99 and she was 89. And God says, you just need to circumcise yourself. <laughs> That'll really help. Um, <laughs> And Abraham did. And wouldn't you know it, the very next year at age 100, Abraham is holding a baby boy in his arms, baby Isaac. The word Isaac means to laugh because Abraham and Sarah each started cracking up when God said, you're going to have a kid. <laughs> and God said, I want you to name that boy laughter because I want you to remember how, how crazy this sounded when I promised it to you and that this was not something you did. And so they finally had their baby, and, you know, Abraham's 100 years old, and he's chasing a, a toddler around, <laughs> and, um, you know, I would imagine those are some of the happiest years of Abraham's life. Him and Sarah finally having their child, raising this child, laughing together, um, having fun together with their kid, bonding together, watching him grow up, watching him become a man, you know, um, 20 years go by, and we don't read anything about the life of Abraham during these 20 years or so that Isaac is growing up. And then God finally breaks the silence in Genesis chapter 22. There's an event, and this is the event that James is referring to here, that happens on a place called Mount Moriah. At this point, Abraham's probably about 120, and Isaac's about 20 years old. And I just want to read for you this great act of faith. As Moses tells us in Genesis 22, he writes, Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called out. And as far as we don't know if God has spoken with Abraham in this way at all in the past 20 years, but Abraham knows his voice. He's, he's spent many, many hours talking with God, and he says, Yes, Lord, here I am. Oh, God, who's blessed me with all good things in my life, what good thing do you have for me now? And God says, please, I want you to take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. And so Abraham has got to be shocked, confused, angry, all this waiting, all these promises from God, and now God's telling him to, to sacrifice this boy who he waited so long for? He's, he's maybe thinking, God, what about the promise? The promise that great nations would come from him. He doesn't have any kids yet. He's not even married. You know, Abraham was in a different position than a lot of parents, where a lot of parents... They're, they have to watch out for their kid's safety. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if the kid is going to live or get sick. Abraham knew this kid's making it to adulthood. I have the promise of God that he's going to become a great nation. And now here, this seems to fly in the face of all of that. You know, and Abraham, did. there's a lot he didn't know. He didn't know that God was against child sacrifice. He's going to be very clear on that. 
short, uh, not too long after this incident here, the other gods around there, they, they accepted child sacrifice. He didn't know how God was going to preserve Isaac through this. In fact, the book of Hebrews says, Abraham figured, well, God can raise the dead. He figured God, if he, if he killed and, and burned up his son as a sacrifice, God would raise him not just from the dead, but from the ashes. And he also had no idea what God was doing here. He had no idea that all of this was actually a, an elaborate picture, a predictive prophecy that would one day point to what Jesus Christ would do. This is why God tells him, you've got to go to the land of Moriah. That's 50 miles away. There's plenty of places to do this where Abraham was living, but Mount Moriah, this is the future site right next to the temple in Jerusalem. This is the future site of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He sent, he said, you have to go there. And what does Abraham do? Early the next morning, he got up, he saddled the donkey, he got, he, he got the firewood together. There's plenty of trees on Mount Moriah to get wood from, but God said, no, the wood has to be carried there. And they start on their journey. They took a few of uh, his servants with him, but they reached a certain point on the third day. He looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. You can see his faith in what he tells his servants. He says, you guys have to stop here. I must go forward. This is, this is a place only the Father and the Son can go. There's, there's business we have to do there on Mount Moriah. And so he took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Yes, the son is the one who had to carry the wood in this situation. He himself carried the fire and the knife. Yes, the, the son carries the wood. The father, judgment is with the father. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up to his father Abraham. He starts thinking, this is not the way we usually do it. We got the wood. We got the other stuff. Usually we got a sacrifice. What's going on here? He said, father, and Abraham said, here I am, my son. He said, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And I'm sure there's a lot Abraham wanted to say in that moment. But all he could get out was this. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. He spoke more truly than he realized that God himself, that is who will provide the offering. And the two of them went on together. And they reached the place where God had told them about. Abraham built an altar there. Probably the slowest altar he's ever built in his life, dreading what is about to come. And he arranged the wood on it, and that brought him to the moment of truth. He's not going to overpower his son. If Isaac is strong enough to carry an armload of wood up a mountain, and Abraham's 120, he's not going to overpower his son and tie him up and bind him on the altar. No, this was going to have to be a voluntary act by Isaac, an act of trust by the son toward the father. And it doesn't tell us what this conversation was like, but I imagine Abraham said, you know, son, there's something I've got to tell you. God has spoken to me, and he has told me that he will provide the lamb, but that you are the lamb. And I'm sure Isaac was shocked, confused. God, uh, Dad, what about the promise that you've told me so much about? And Abraham must have said, I don't know. I, I don't know how... 
me offering up my one and only son on this mountain, I can't imagine what that has to do with this promise that all the nations of the world will be blessed through my descendants, but we've got to trust God. And Isaac would have said, okay, Dad, I love you. And so Abraham bound his son Isaac and arranged him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife. to slay his son. And suddenly, there's a voice from the heavens. The angel of Yahweh called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! And Isaac's like, Dad, you got a text? (laughs) Maybe you should check that first. (laughs) And Abraham said, here I am. And God says, do not lay a hand on the boy. The angel of Yahweh actually is the Old Testament appearance When Jesus Christ shows up in the Old Testament, he shows up as the angel of Yahweh. He's how that must have felt for him to be there at Mount Moriah watching the father raise the knife, knowing that this was a picture of what he would do 2,000 years later. And in that case, there would be no last-minute intervention. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket saw a ram caught by its horns in the thorns, almost like a crown of thorns, went over, took the ram, and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so that's the story of of Mount Moriah and Abraham willing to sacrifice Isaac as an act of faith. Now, what we have here is one incredible example of predictive prophecy. But what we also have is an incredible act of faith. And what you may notice here that's not quite as clear when you first read James 2 is that Abraham's act of faith happened way back here when he was about 80 years old. That's when he was declared righteous in God's sight. This incident of the great work that he did, that's maybe 40 years later. There's 40 years between these two events that James refers to in his retelling of the the story of the life of Abraham. And so this is not that Abraham, you know, so you've got to ask yourself, so are we really saying Abraham was not a believer until he offered up Isaac on the altar? Or was it that he was a believer walking with God the whole time and that faith was growing and there were steps of faith and there were actions along the way and this act here on Mount Moriah was simply the continuation or the completion of a process that was started 40 years ago. If you walk with God for long enough, if you trust Him enough, that faith can grow, and you'll be amazed at some of the works you'll find yourself doing. And so he says, you see that a man is justified, that a man is shown to be right with God by works and not by faith alone. So he says, so you can see. You know, how do we know Abraham had faith? Because he, is he just claimed he had faith and then went on with his life? No, there were works. There were actions that flowed from that faith. He says, in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified, also shown to be right with God by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Yeah, time would fail us if we tried to tell the story of Rahab. You can read this one in Joshua too. But the short version is she was this poor Canaanite prostitute, a pagan 
idol worshiper, living in the awful city of Jericho. She worked, in the, she worked in the textile industry by day, and she was a prostitute by night. And these two Israelite spies come to that town, and they end up hiding out at her place. The king of Jericho sends the soldiers to arrest these spies, and instead of turning them in, Rahab hides them, and then she has this conversation where she says, I know that, you're, that, that Yahweh is the supreme God of heaven and earth. And she helped the spies escape. She did not turn them in. And she said, you know, can you just do something for me when you guys come through? Can you spare me and take me in to be an Israelite? And so we see Rahab had faith. But it wasn't just that she just said, yeah, I believe in Yahweh and turned in the spies. No, she had enough faith to, to stick her neck out there, to, put her, to take a risk, to put her life on the line to hide these spies. And Rahab, she's about as, as different as you can get from Abraham. She's poor. She's non-Israelite. Abraham was wealthy. He's the father of the nation of Israel. And yet, whether rich or poor, male or female, slave or free, through faith, these guys both were declared righteous. And they both were used mightily in God's plan. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Yeah, so a body without breath isn't much good. Kind of looks like a human, but it's definitely not. And faith without works, it's about the same. Kind of sounds all right, but, you know, it's pretty useless, and it's not what it looks like at first. So how do we harmonize James and Paul? Well, imagine a doctor saying two different things to two different patients. You know, to the one patient, the doctor says, you need to get some rest. And then turns to patient number two, and she says, you need to get some exercise. Now, would you say this doctor is crazy, confused, full of contradictions, shouldn't be trusted? No. You would say, well, that doctor knows enough to tell that um, patient one from patient two, and, and that patient one needed something different than patient two needed. That's what we have here with James and Paul. With Dr. Paul, he's uh, battling legalists who were teaching salvation by works. He was arguing there's nothing we can do to add to Christ's finished works. So stop trying to add in these works, especially so they kept trying to get these, these adult male Gentiles. They kept trying to make them get circumcised to come to Christ, which is a really high bar to clear to receive Christ. When Paul talks about justification, he usually means God declares us to be righteous in his sight. It's a legal standing that we receive from him. And Paul also agreed with James. Paul agreed that genuine faith will eventually produce works. Like in Titus 1.16, he's talking about these false teachers. He says, you know, some people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. He says, you want to know whether their faith is genuine? Look at their works. That will tell the genuineness of their faith. What about James? Well, James is worried that his audience is full of pseudo-Christians, false Christians. Their faith might be empty words, mental assent, maybe even some sort of emotional thing, like these demons that are shuddering, fear of God. But what James is saying is that genuine faith will eventually produce works. 
When he talks about justification, he talks about showing our faith to other people. This is one of the ways we can help one another is by helping them see maybe, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you need to look down into your heart and see, have you ever really received Christ? And of course, as we saw a couple weeks ago, James agreed with Paul that salvation was a gift from God, not something we can earn. He said every good and perfect gift is from above. It's from the Father. He gave us birth through the word of truth. You know, you can't like make yourself born. No, this is something that happens to you. And so James and Paul are not in conflict with one another in any way. They've got different emphases, different audiences. And a few lessons we can take away from this is that we can't see a person's heart, but we can see their actions. God can see the person's heart, but we can't. And so we need to, we need to have some humility. We don't want to, some Christians go around declaring this person is saved and this person isn't, and it's like, I can't see that person's heart. Just because they don't have works, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't, they don't have genuine faith. There might be other things that have gone wrong there that have produced some problems in their life. We're saved by faith alone, but true faith is never alone. It will eventually produce some works. And pseudo-Christianity is a real danger, especially for church kids. And like I said, I can speak to this. I grew up in the church, and yet... Um, it was not genuine. It wasn't real. I didn't really get it until I was a senior in high school. And part of what had to happen was my, my life sort of had to fall apart a little bit, and I had to develop a hunger for God. I had to develop a... Um, I had to kind of get sick of my own way of doing things. And I still remember I was sitting under the, the teaching of this guy. I was sort of at the end of a period of suffering in my life, and I had started coming back and sitting under the Word of God. And I was listening to this guy teach the Word... And I remember him giving this invitation. And he said, in your heart, why don't you call out to God? Why don't you receive the love, the personal love that he's offering you? And until that point in my life, I'd always thought of the love of God as distant, far away, like, like the federal government cares for me in some very, like, <laughs> you know, legal way. But it wasn't personal, like a friendship. And at that moment, the, the love of God flooded into my heart, and I broke down weeping because it was the love I had always been looking for and had never been able to find. And it immediately began to produce works in my life. I think that's the point where I came to life spiritually. And it, it was so lame before showing up at Christian meetings and going through the motions, and you try so hard, but you don't, when you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you just, you're not going to do very well spiritually. He's the one that gives us the power, the motivation, the direction. Real big change once the Holy Spirit came into my life. And that's the thing. Some of us might need to receive Christ, and it might be for the first time. We see kids in our own church here who are like, you know, when I was, you know, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, when I was three, there was something I prayed with my mom. And it's like, okay, that was a good, a good start, but there needs to be an adult decision. And if, if there's like no works at all, ever, maybe think about this. Think about this. Met a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of kids that grew up in Xenos who received Christ when they were in their late teens or early 20s or mid-20s and are like, they're doing a lot better spiritually now since that happened. And in a sense, it's sort of easier if this is the problem because it's pretty easily fixable. 
Receive Christ. Um, you might just need to get some good teaching on how spiritual growth works. That's the problem sometimes is, is some, some Christians fall under bad teaching on spiritual growth, and so they just they can never really get anywhere. They're under law. It's sort of the problem Paul was talking about in Galatians. And um, I can recommend some good books on that. Watchman Nee, Andrew Murray, people read a lot around here. Um, we've got some books out, in the, out for sale there on this subject. And I would say keep taking steps of faith. That's the other piece of advice I would have. If you don't use your faith, it's like a muscle and it gets weak and flabby. But if you'd step out in faith, you'll be amazed at how that faith will grow and the sort of actions that will produce as the months turn into years, turn into decades. And you might see yourself taking some pretty mighty steps of faith like old Father Abraham there. Lord, we don't want to be Christians that are all talk. We want to walk the walk. We don't want to just passively sit through church services and float through our spiritual lives, Lord, but we want that real genuine faith that works that James is talking about here, Lord, that really plays out in real actions, Lord, actions that flow from a heart that's been changed by you, Lord, actions that flow from that new birth. Thank you for how you, you've woken so many of us up, Lord, and I pray for those who haven't had that experience yet of that new birth. I pray that they would experience that. I pray for those of us who are confused that we'd be able to have some dealings with you, Lord, tonight, tomorrow, in the next few days, and that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.